Hi, welcome to What is Wellness, where I speak to experts in many different areas of the wellness field, whether it's environmentalists, um, mental health professionals, doctors, naturopaths, nutritionists, um, and even individuals who just have had incredible, inspiring stories in the wellness space so that we can get a broad picture of what actually is wellness. I am your host, Kristen O'Connor, and I am incredibly thrilled today to welcome Dr. Peter Dadamo, who really started my career in wellness. So it's very exciting to have him on. Dr. Dadamo is a naturopathic physician who has authored over 20 books. He started the Blood Type Diet, and his books range from obviously Eat Right for Your Type, which is a New York Times bestseller. And then he goes into a lot of books that are specific to disease uh, processes like diabetes, cancer, arthritis, even allergies. He has Eat Right for Your Type cookbooks and just an amazing resource and wealth of information out there to help you learn about the blood type diet. Dr. Dadamo founded the Institute for Human Individuality, and Dr. Dadamo is currently developing several new bioinformatics tools. In professional and academic circles, he's known for his genetic software like Opus 23 and SWAMI. These are programs that help create very, very specific diet protocols for people that take into consideration all of their genetic makeup, their blood type, their gut microbiome, and compiles it to create very unique individual programs per person. Dr. Didamo is a distinguished professor of clinical sciences at the University of Bridgeport College of Naturopathic Medicine, where he directs the new University of Bridgeport Center of Excellence in Generative Medicine. So get ready, buckle your seatbelts, because you're about to learn a whole heck of a lot. Welcome, Dr. Diadamo. wanted to get everybody sort of on the same page and go back to basics and just explain to everybody the fundamental difference between naturopathic doctor and traditional medicine. Okay, great question. Uh, I think it's important to understand really what the word traditional means in an absolute academic sense. See, we're always compared to traditional medicine, although academically we're traditional medicine. They're actually, they're actually called biomedicine in academia. So, uh, it, you know, and that's nothing wrong, because actually, when you think about the fact that, you know, listen, we've we've had a lot of marvelous advances in medicine uh, and, and technology over the last uh, century. And there's indisputable benefit to biomedicine. But we also have many thousands of years of having used plants and other types of things, which we're only now beginning to sort of tease out from a scientific standpoint why they work and their active ingredients. And of course, the first step is usually to synthesize a, uh, a synthetic version and make a drug out of it, which is what we did with uh, uh, the malaria drug that was isolated from uh, Chinese wormwood. So generally, there's really one of these strange um, consequences in that uh, usually when something in traditional or naturopathic medicine works, uh, usually the effort is then to basically try to make a pharmaceutical out of it and then get it into the biomedicine. Uh, and oftentimes that works sort of okay, but a lot is lost. And in particular, what we see in, um, especially the medicinal plants, is that there's a certain evolutionary wisdom that grows with the plant. And oftentimes the plant contains multiple constituents that act together. And if you just tease out what a pharmaceutical company would consider the active ingredient, it works in a much more unstable manner. The perfect example would be uh, an herb that almost everybody has seen at some point on a pharmacist shelf in an urn called Uva Ursi. You know, like when the pharmacists like to be like cute, they put up the old herbal vases. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, and we almost always see uva ursi, which actually is Latin for a uh, bearberry. Um, and uva ursi has been used since Roman times for urinary tract infections and used for uh, cystitis and certain types of, uh, of minor kidney problems. 
And so it went in the 1950s, they actually identified the active ingredient, which is a chemical called arbutin. And they um, synthesized it and then they used it in studies and they concluded, well, yes, arbutin is effective, but we have more effective things. And so the published research says, you know, arbutin from uva ursi, not, not effective. However, if you go back and actually do the study by looking at the whole plant, you realize that the plant contains constituents which alkalinize the urine. And the chemical arbutin only works when the urine is alkaline. So ultimately, if you don't control for the acidity or alkalinity of the urine, you get a very under, under, underwhelming effect. But the plant contains the very things that are needed to optimize the effect of the active ingredient. So naturopaths like using things that are relatively close to their natural state as pharmaceuticals or nutraceuticals. Uh, our belief is that 4 million years of evolution tends to produce a superior product. Right. And ultimately the reality is that that superior product just simply has to be understood as being number one, gradual, number two, subtle, number three, safe. So gradual, subtle, and safe. And we have long uh, known that many of the traditional medicines, they, they work on more on chronic disease. I tell people, if you get into a motorcycle accident, don't see a naturopath. Okay. <laughs> Ultimately, um, you need to go to an emergency room and have something to stop your brain from swelling. Uh, <laughs> on the other hand, here's where the bankruptcy of, 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 of modern biomedicine occurs. Because if you look at virtually every new drug that's being unveiled, is that they understand chronic disease to simply be a long version of acute disease. So with them, a lot of chronic disease is still all about symptom removal. And very little is about addressing any of the root causes. Right. So it makes for a great pharmaceutical because, let's face it, who doesn't want to have an improvement in their symptoms, even if they do have a chronic disease? But chronic disease is much a much more different animal than acute disease. Acute disease is a whole different set of um, uh, biological response components. It, there's a lot more shock. There's all sorts of other um, things that take place that you don't see in chronic disease. Chronic disease is really just like a gradual unraveling of function. And that has a complex natural history because as we go through chronic disease, we don't just stand by, we adapt to it. So our body attempts to deal with this unraveling of function. Sometimes we change our demands and become less, you know, I mean, think of an example of a person who has, you know, arthritis of the hip and, you know, knows that exercise is good, but they're just not going to be able to exercise. You change in relationship to the limitations that you have. So we, try to make the system respond more, um, more creatively to the changes that are produced over the long time that a person has a chronic disease. And so, and we, we have a, we live in a society of, of, of instantaneous results. I mean, everybody wants something really fast. Well, that's, what's so interesting to me about how you're addressing the difference, because one of the things that we've always connected over obviously is the food and diet component of, you know, naturopathic medicine and how food can really impact people. And the pushback that I get a lot is, Oh, but you know, you know, it's like, they want to see the results right away. And I love that you were talking about how it's a slow approach. And I always try to explain that this is a long-term investment in yourself, right? This isn't something that is, I mean, of course there are things that do help more quickly, but you are 100% correct, which is we we didn't get sick fast, and we're probably going to have to deal with the recovery a little bit more uh, realistically as well. And of course, what, what are the major contributors to chronic disease? Well, getting older. So, uh, you know, that's number one. I mean, as we get older, we just don't work as well. We don't heal as fast. So there's a lot of things that have to be kind of worked uh, we have to be respected as part of that process. But I think there's a, um, a real, uh, you know, we have a slow food, you're probably familiar more than me with slow food movements and things. We need a slow medicine movement. Yeah. You know, we, we need a medicine movement that, and, and, I, and it's not even just a question on the patient's perspective. I've started telling my students that they really shouldn't 
think about having everything wrapped up at the end of their visit, that they should have the, the solution, the analysis, the deduction. It all has to be done in that 45 minutes. I mean, what, why? Um, what, why don't you just take a little time, tell the patient, hey, uh, it's a complex case. I want to think about it. I want to let. I want to send some of this over to my subconscious and see what it comes back with. And uh, why? Why do we have to get everything done? And I've never met a patient who didn't like hearing <clears throat> that I was going to think about him for five days instead of the next twenty-two minutes. Yeah. And and I think that that's really the case with um, getting used to doing things. You know the the. Uh, what did Muhammad say? You know, you move the mountain by picking up the first rock, he said. And ultimately, you, you do have, you have to start. So everywhere, you got to start. But then you have to commit, you know, to the, the sort of inexorable nature of it. And I, I like to think it's sort of like a, you know, a layaway plan, you know, a, a Christmas club. You know, you do a little bit every day, but do it intelligently. So many people do things that they were told to do or they were convinced to do but they have no real insight as to how appropriate it was for them well that's what i find i find that really interesting actually because i think a lot of people are sort of kind of reaching around in the dark you know they get all this information thrown at them and they're trying to identify it but what you do um has always really been fascinating to me and inspiring because people know you for the blood type diet, but I always, whenever I talk to people, I'm like, that's just scratches the surface of how personalized and individualized you get, which is extremely important for people to know because over the course of the past 10 years of me being a private chef, every single person I've approached, I've tried to take what I've learned from you. And really, I mean, I, and I don't have the background knowledge that you have. I, you know, I was lucky enough to be taught by you you know, and, and write the, the cookbooks with you. But for me, you know, I kind of just observed human beings and I was cooking for one person and I would watch them intently, see how their bodies react. And then I would evolve my process with them. But you do this on such an in-depth level. And I'm curious about, you know, how you come to these super unique and personalized approaches to wellness and to helping people achieve optimal wellness, even if it's not like, even if they're not coming to you with you know, I know you get a wide variety of patients. Some have, like you said, incredibly acute illnesses. Other people want to be preventative. Other people have chronic situations. So how do you get to that really unique dissection of how every single person is personalized and individual? You know, um, if we start with the basic blood type theory, that really is something I inherited from my dad. He was the first person to ask that question as to whether or not there might be some marker that he could use, simple marker, inexpensive marker, that could guide the way that he should tailor the diet, the general tendencies. And you have to imagine now, this is back in the early 1960s. And, uh, and this is a guy who's thinking that, you know, I wish every time I try a unitary diet, some people do well and some people don't. Now, there are people in the field of nutrition who are still clinging to this unitary diet thing now, be it paleo or FODMAP or vegan or whatever. And, you know, and, and in many instances, what they did is they found something that worked for them. The mistake that they made is they were superimposing their experience as some sort of a bigger statement about how effective it is for the world. So people get evangelical. Now, the interesting thing about what I try to do is look for the, 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 the sort of missing parts in things. You know, why, if, if, for instance, if veganism was a great diet for everybody, why do so many people feel that they do better when they do a high protein, low carb? If high protein, low carb is good, why do so many people feel better when they do a Mediterranean type diet or a Blue Zones diet? The reality is that there's, you can't really see any clear cut indications that any one of these diets has universal acceptance, universal acclaim. So why don't, the logical concept, uh, conclusion should be, well, it's probably because we live in a multi multiverse of diets you know you, you, we live in a universe of diets is when you have your diet and everyone else is, is wrong but a multiverse means that there are just lots of different diets and we've never really had the kind of insight that we have now with genetics and things but it still boils down to one basic fact you can talk about all the more sophisticated genes that are out there but the gene that makes you your abo blood type is one big very important gene. It has a lot of connections uh, 
to physiological functions that people are quite unaware of. When you talk to a person about blood type, they think, well, you know, it's something that screws up a person in the emergency room. If they put the wrong blood in somebody, they put the blood type A and type of an O. And this tells you already how significant this difference is, that you take blood from one person and give it to the wrong person, they get sick. Your and body totally die. rejects it, right. Probably die, you know? <laughs> so the, the reality is that, you know, looking back, now working back from there, there's very few other things that are going to have that kind of a significant effect, you know, to basically have a, make a universal replacement part. Now, the problem is, and you get this even with scientists and medical people, is they take the deep knowledge of blood types and their role in transfusion and they often make the mistake of thinking that's the reason why they're there. That's the reason we have them, which is, of course, silly because nature didn't give a darn about transfusions. It doesn't care about that kind of stuff. We discovered that this was a clue to allow us to have a life-saving medical procedure. But from an evolutionary standpoint, uh, it really had nothing to do with blood transfusion. So what did it have to do with? Well, it had a lot to do with infectious diseases. and. I can think of no more pertinent example than COVID, where we actually see a significant difference in outcomes by blood type. But it's not unrealistic to think that Mother Nature had this idea in the back of her mind, which is make people with slightly different immune systems. And when a particular virus or whatever comes along, some people will be resistant and some people will be susceptible. But if something else comes along after that, maybe the prior susceptibility group is now the resistant group and the prior resistant group is now the susceptible group so everybody's this this sort of like checks and balances that there are certain bugs that mess you up if you're type o there are certain bugs that mess you up if you're type a so nature was hedging its bets back before we had public health and epidemiologists they they had this opportunity the nature said well if we make everybody a little bit different we don't have a cataclysmic type thing where everybody gets it that's really fascinating and it really is the major reason now Let's also take a look at things besides bugs, because where do bugs mostly inhabit? Well, they inhabit your digestive tract. So ultimately, you're looking at bugs, digestive tract, and you're looking at immune system. So you have that triangulation, and you're seeing that there's a big footprint of your ABO blood type in your digestive tract. The immunology of your gut lining is very much dictated by your blood type. And your interactions with specific foods immunologically is often influenced by the expression of your blood type. So you can take a food that would have no ill effects in type O that would cause a reaction in type A, just like there would be bugs that would do that same exact thing. And we know that there are proteins that can cause inflammation. They're called so-called lectins that cause um, clumping and, and, and activation of the immune system. All can be very blood type specific. So you take a a, a lima bean, it will clot up people who are type A, but it has absolutely no effect on people who are type O or type B. So you can start from some basic things. Now, let's also understand one great thing about blood type. It's cheap as all hell to figure out your blood type. You can go give blood and you get it done for free. Or you can buy a blood typing kit for seven bucks and do it on your kitchen table. It is a very singularly cost-effective way of learning something about yourself. The rest of where you do what you do kind of is driven by what your needs are. The interesting thing is that what I always found interesting was that the people who benefited most from adopting a diet that's predictable by their blood type, the sicker you are, the more significant the response and the quicker you'll see changes. So in other words, it really addresses the ways you unravel as a sick person such that by monitoring and changing your diet and removing certain provocative foods, you're going to see that play out in a person who's dealing with an inflammatory condition or an immunological condition or a metabolic condition. Somebody who has who knows how they feel whether that condition is getting better or worse, those people are going to see, they're going to feel the changes very fast. Now, you take a healthy person, you put them on a diet for their blood, they might see changes, but they don't really have far to go. You know, there's right. well, it's of- all about your starting point. And that's the same. Like when I'm cooking for people, you know, I always talk about what is your starting point? How it's like, how unhealthy are you right now? <laughs> and where do you need to go? And people who are, you know, kind of like on the other side of the spectrum of, not eating well or not taking care of themselves, they immediately will see results through changing their diet and 
you know. Yes, and ultimately, I think the important thing to realize is that it's it's not about what's good or bad. It's about what what fits, you know. What what does positive work inside of your body? There there are many things that probably don't really do much at all. I mean, you can have foods as as drugs, foods as poisons, and foods as foods. You know, a food that's a food is just producing a source of energy. A food that's a poison is a food that's acting to encourage some disruption in your body. And a food that's a medicine is a food that's the, the, the consumption of it moves you, you're physiologically, metabolically, hormonally in a proper direction. So, you know, the best you can hope for if you just don't know much about yourself is food for food, right? Right. So that's what we, most of what we do is we eat food with the notion that it's going to give us some calories and we're going to, if we don't exercise, the calories start to build up. But normally, if we exercise and we eat the right foods, we get a nice balance. But you don't really do a whole lot of healing under that situation, but you don't do a lot of damage either. On the other hand, you, let's say, eat a bunch of things that are bad. Well, you might see increases in inflammation or gut dysfunction, or hormonal problems or cognitive issues. Um, And you might never trace those to foods. And the same thing with uh, eating a lot of things that might be good for you. You might see improvements in those things over time. But it's slow. You know, I'll, I'll tell you kind of one story that struck me at the end of 40 years of practicing medicine. When I saw somebody and I, I gave them some recommendations and they went away and they came back, let's say, in three months. And I had the chart in front of me and I'd say, well, you know, uh, patient was here last time they were complaining of, uh, of uh, ulcerative colitis or migraine headaches. And then they're not talking about those today. You know, they're talking about their frozen shoulder. And, you know, you get in there and go, what happened to this other thing that you had? Oh, that, yeah, yeah, that that went away. And it was like, okay, did, did it go away because you stopped thinking about it or you stopped thinking about it and it sort of went away? Um, and, 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 and is amnesia part of the process of letting go of something? Does it, when you release it to the fact that it doesn't even enter into your calculations anymore, I suppose that means that the healing is done. So I mean, again, you know, I, I just find it very interesting that sometimes with people, um, you know, that it's like me, if I, let's say I get a toothache or something, I mean, once it's fixed, I don't, I don't think about the toothache. I'm without my life, you know, I think people are like that too. But, you know, when you're dealing with something that's significant, an immunological disorder or a cancer, a cardiovascular thing, something that's going to be with you, if you follow the appropriate diet that's outlined in the books that I've written over the years, you'll see, you'll see significant improvement in a very short term, usually um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, again, you know, it's about choosing the right foods. It's also like you make such a great point with we when we did the cookbooks together. It's about eating good food yeah. in addition to the right food. Yeah. I used to I, when I wrote my first book, I, I said you know, okay, typo are recommended to be more high protein people. So um, I said you know, don't think that this chapter is about eating, you know, at uh, I don't know, uh, some steakhouse or something that you don't know what kind of meat it is. Try to find grass-fed meat. Guess what? In 1995, you know, there was one place in Nebraska that sold grass-fed meat. They would send it to you in dry ice, okay? And now, of course, you can walk into any local market and there's grass-fed meat. So again, it really is also about making sure that you find the right, you know, sources and, and, and and again, it's such a small point where people go, well, that's just a kind of a millennial thing or or a, a hipster thing, grass-fed meat. But it's not. It's not you know, at all. It's no, a, animals were like never a completely different food. Animals were never designed to eat grains. They're ruminants. They they're designed to break down grass. Now here's the weird thing: um, when you have a grass-fed animal, grass-fed meat. The fat content is roughly on par with, you know, skin chicken. And if you look at the makeup of the fats that are in a lot of grass-fed meats, they're very high in a chemical called CLA, conjugated linolenic acid. You know, it, and we think, how many people have heard that trans fats are bad for you? They, yeah. they cause inflammation. 
conjugated linolenic acid is the only good trans fat that you can consume. Don't people take that as a supplement? They do. And it's one of the strongest cases as an anti-cancer preventive is conjugated linolenic acid. And the conjugated linolenic acid that's produced through feeding an animal what it's supposed to eat is one of the payoffs. So here's the paradox. Wow. Meat, which is supposed to give you cancer, if it's raised properly and consumed by a person who can metabolize, it actually has an ingredient that lowers your rate of cancer. That is yeah. absolutely incredible. Irony is 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 uh, one of my favorite things in, in medicine because I find yeah. almost everything in medicine ironic. Well, I, f- I find it interesting because this, I mean, even just starting with that gives such incredible direction for people. But you also go into genetics, into gut microbiome. When people come to you as a patient, there's, you know, you do body measurements to figure out how they were grown in utero and how that impacts their health and family history. And all of those things add together to make one typo slightly different than another typo and have slightly different needs. And and I think people are starting to really talk about gut microbiome, mm-hmm. but you have been, I mean, to, in my world, you were the first person to talk about it and to really address it. You so, know what Mark Twain said is, is everybody complains about the weather, but nobody does anything about it. And, <laughs> and the reality is it's kind of like, that's the reality with our understanding of the microbiome because it's driven by our understanding of probiotics and prebiotics and things like that. But it turns out that that's a very cartoonish look at the microbiome because number one, you can only make a probiotic out of what you can make a probiotic out of. The bacteria has to be able to form a spore. It has to be comfortable being dry. It has to be comfortable in oxygen. It turns out most of your bugs, you can't make pills out of, which is why perhaps maybe putting poop from one person into another maybe is is beneficial. But the reality is that it also is somewhat perplexing from a mathematical standpoint. When when I learned bacteriology as a medical student, I learned medical microbiology, just like your brother would. Now, Now, with that in mind, understand what medical microbiology is. Plague is bad. Smallpox is bad you know, cholera is bad. In other words, if you find something of one of those guys, it means something bad is happening. Right. When you look at the microbiome, you're looking at what are called the commensals. You're looking at the bacteria that are pretty much there, you know, and they only cause problems when the balance starts to get disrupted or something goes wrong and they bloom or whatever. And here's the weird part, that because of their very ubiquitous nature, It's very hard to make statements about their relative importance from one person to another. I could have 1,000 times more of a certain bacteria in my system than you, and statistically, we would still have to be considered the same, even though I have 1,000 times more of this bacteria than you. That's how wide the parameters are from what we have to consider normal. What I did is I, I, I play with networks. I mean, I love networks. So I stopped counting bacteria and started looking at whether that difference between you and I is significant as per whether it produces some sort of community disruption. In other words, is that, is that change in me, have, is that causing other imbalances that are making up the diversity of the community or the checks and balances and stuff? If not, then it's just a number. So you have to look at the the network, the the actual, I guess what you would call the ecosystem and how that fits together. So I needed to build data that gave me insight as to the relationships between each individual bacteria that made up the microbiome so that we could then see where the change in me was causing certain things to be missing that we needed to be seeing that they were there. And then you could say, oh, that that imbalance is significant because it's leaving a vapor trail of things that are not right. Yeah. I mean, I remember when we first did a study of my gut microbiome and you showed me the results and there were, uh, you know, I think there were about five markers that you were concerned about. And we, you gave me some really specific things. Like I forget what it was. There was something, pomegranate juice is one of them. And then one was honey with some tinctures on top. And I did it for a three week period. And then we retested and the markers were completely lowered. 
I mean, gone or almost or insignificant. It's a, it's a, it's a social engineering type of, a, of thing. You know, you, you um, when we when we got together, the first thing I we talked about, if you remember, was the presence or absence of what are called keystones mm-hmm. and keystones are members of the community that act like a keystone in an arch. Their role is so critical that they hold up the entire ecosystem, which is why everybody worries about the bees disappearing because bees occupy an ecological niche that's a keystone. So when we look at your microbiome pattern, we want to see certain keystone species that are there. And if they're not, we're going to see, just like if you remove the keystone from an arch, it's going to be a very unstable situation. So the first thing we always do is look to see if there are keystones. If the keystones are missing, how do we get them back? And sometimes, like you were saying before, sometimes it leads to very strange recommendations, like going out <laughs> and buying Bob's Red Mills cranberry bean flour, you know? But the interesting thing I find about microbiome engineering is that a lot of times the solutions are just different foods. Eat, eat a little bit more of this and they eat some kiwis. Oh no, eat more walnuts, you know? Or have like a, go buy a potato and cook it, then cool it and then cook it again. Right, right. I remember talking about that with you. That, that's what I find interesting too. So if we're looking at gut microbiome from, and, and I know, again, we're talking about personalized, you know, approach to healing. And then we're also kind of talking about, are there any common denominators? So I always kind of thought that when we looked at gut microbiome and something that everybody could do, in order to enrich their own personal gut microbiome was to diversify their nutrient intake. So I remember you saying, you know, even just having different types of grains, whether it's buckwheat, amaranth, quinoa, and you can use a medicinal volume, which is like a tablespoon of it. And just having your gut interact with a, a diversity of ingredients is, is a good thing to do. You know, I, I'm starting my own food product company and I look around at other product companies and all this like, oh, we only have four ingredients. So that makes it great. I kind of just based on what I knew with you, I said to myself, wait a minute, what if we had every product had a diverse array of super high intensely nutrient ingredients? Does that, how does that interact with our gut? And does that help, you know, for each of us to diversify our microbiome in a positive way. Well, diversity is good. You know, it's good in society. It's good. In, <laughs> it's good. In, it's good in your gut. Uh, we like diversity because there's a lot of checks and balances. So the first thing we do is we get rid of those imbalances with the keystones. Then we look at whether or not you've got the sufficient probiotics, if you have any dysbiosis bacteria. So it really becomes about playing one off against the other. Now, now to answer your question about uh, a, a sort of the ability to have, you know, a, a sort of a plethora of, of beneficial things. Uh, you remember what Liberace said? He said, too much of a good thing is wonderful. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, again, you, you could, you could look, you could look at it, but you know, intelligent, you know um, yeah. A lot of times the emphasis nowadays is on, you know, well, we're going to be so strict here. It's going to be so clean. It's going to be, you know, it's like, in, in a way, the world is a dirty place for a reason. And we came out of dirt. You know, we walked out of primordial muck ooze, got two legs, and then walked in some more ooze. And 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 then, you know, think about what goes into uh, making us. We, we've had to exist with the world from, the, from when we were a single-celled organism, we've had to form relationships, we've had to have dependencies. So the more broader you are, and this is actually a well-known fact that, that uh, the worst thing you can do with kids is to limit their exposure to things because that just puts them in a, a bubble and they wind up then later on having allergies later on. And you know, The best thing you can do with a kid is uh, have them hang out with other kids and go like play in the dirt because there's soil organisms in there and all sorts of wonderful things. And, 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 and it's really just, um, it's about common sense. You know, we live in very sort of rarefied, you know, we live in apartment buildings with air is filtered, with water is filtered, you know, where the lights filtered, you know, and, and very difficult to, to be natural in a increasingly unnatural world. But I, I find a lot of people with the younger generation are certainly more aware of the fact that it doesn't have to be that way. You know, they can, they can live a different life. Does it help to eat dirt uh, using a Dorito as a chip when you're three? Because I did that. 
<laughs> oh, but you're <laughs> you right. Know? I think a lot of people are more aware of growing their own food and trying to have organic gardens in their yard or even in their apartments. If there's just, I mean, I've tried to set up by my window, <laughs> you know, to be able to grow some things. It's, it's hasn't been entirely successful, but dirt is good. I remember we used to have a, a very old uh, house painter when I was a kid, uh, from the South. And he used to say that his mother said that before you die, you'll eat a peck of dirt. He said, you'll eat a peck of dirt. <laughs> now, a peck is a, like, I don't know, is that like a bushel or something? Cause that's a lot of dirt. It sounds like a lot of dirt. A lot of dirt. A lot of dirt. Yeah. A lot of dirt, you know, but guess what? You know, we, we run away from, from these educating types of exposures when we think that those exposures, well, like all we can think about is, oh, they're carcinogenic or this and that. But, you know, a lot, a lot of the exposures are, we have an immune system that has to go through a very extensive training period in order to be able to help us. And it's important to have that awareness. And the other thing too, is to harken back to blood type. I mean, the single biggest influence on the makeup of your microbiome down there is your blood type. Because one of the things the bacteria love to munch on in your digestive tract are the sugars that make your blood type your blood type. So they, you're, you're actually, they're eating right for their type, you know, the bacteria, because they are, uh, you have bacteria that like to munch on the sugar that makes a person type A, or in your case, a thing that makes a person type O is a sugar named fucose. And it's, that's one of the things that's so important with, um, keystones because uh, very few bacteria can metabolize fucose to anything. And without that, bacteria keystone they don't have the other things that you can produce from fucose which other bacteria depend on but can't make for themselves so it's like a very <clears throat> intricate kind of you know talks about codependency you know yeah that is very interesting i think the other thing you know the other theme that we that keeps coming up when we keep talking about is inflammation and you know i know that gut microbiome can influence inflammation also what we eat or when we don't eat correctly influences and people I know are talking a lot about this subject, but I think there's a disconnect as to what it actually does to our body systems and what's affected by inflammation. And I think when people don't necessarily have that knowledge, it sort of becomes, Oh, well, whatever, you know, I'll, I'll take an Advil or I'll do this or that. But, you know, and again, that also goes back to the slow process of healing. So can you help us, explain to everybody the impact, the negative impact of inflammation. I mean, I've had 17 knee surgeries, so I know that it's been a concentration of my life. Yeah, there's a lot of inflammation in those A lot of inflammation. But you even said to me one time something about my cells and how they were doing okay more than you thought because, because there are things you can do to address inflammation if you're doing it correctly. You know, let's, let's start with, uh, what I, I call the twofold aspect of everything, which is what you, you know, we started this conversation. You asked me what would bring me to the conclusions that I've drawn over these years. It's, it's a categorical inability to accept the fact that there are any absolutes in this world. Mm -hmm. I'm literally allergic to that notion. So uh, I am not, you know, um, much of a joiner. I don't have a whole lot of beliefs. I, I, the only thing I believe in is my own incapacities to believe anything. But <laughs> the, the reality is now let's, let's look at the twofold aspect of inflammation. And here's one you don't normally hear, which is when is inflammation bad and when is inflammation good? Inflammation can be good for you because low levels of inflammation are how your body cleans house. So in essence, all the things that modulate inflammation at the cellular level, when they are at their low resting state, actually are literally your body going through a clean cycle like your dishwasher. And this is not simply with regard to your digestive tract. Actually, the cellular basis of the cells go through a cleaning cycle, even the notion of how we sleep. When we sleep and we awaken refreshed, it's because we achieved during sleep what we were supposed to achieve. We went through a cleaning cycle. In other words, called autophagy, which is Latin for I eat myself. But nonetheless, <laughs> what you're doing is you're munching on all the junk that was left over from your day's work of thinking. And if you consider the brain like a factory, think of it, let's say I tell my students, think of it like a replacement window factory. We make replacement windows out of vinyl, aluminum, and glass and some caulk. So you make X number of windows, 
you have so many pieces of glass that are chunks of pieces and leftover stuff. What is that? It all winds up on the factory floor. So ultimately, if you didn't have somebody come by after work with a, with a push broom and a vacuum cleaner, eventually your factory wouldn't work anymore because the debris from the actual production of the uh, replacement windows would be so high that people couldn't stand at their machinery anymore. And this is just the nature of how we get into a mess. We don't have an effective way of being able to go through this cleaning cycle. Now, the brain, that's why we sleep. I mean, ultimately, you could say to yourself, well, why do we spend so much time sleeping when it's just so unproductive? You know, I could be at my computer. It's because it's our brain has to go through this cleaning cycle. Is it, is it like the body's natural detox in a way? It is in the sense that it isn't really toxins we're getting rid of. It's the byproducts of existence. <clears throat> so it's like I say, it's, it's, it's a natural outcome of just doing your job. The brain has a couple of bazillion chemical reactions in the course of a day. And there's just a lot of leftover junk. So a lot of that, that's why, for instance, when let's say you're sleeping and you get woken up in the middle of sleeping, but not at a good time, you actually feel worse than if you had just gone a little further and gone. It's like going into the dishwasher when it's mid cycle <laughs> and wondering why your glasses fog up. You know, right. it, it, it's, it's, it's just not a good time to open up the dishwasher. Right. So you want to let it get to the end so that you have that kind of refreshed feeling. Now, our fat cells do that same thing. So for instance, when we are in proper balance, that low level of inflammation is tied into our metabolism because actually our, our fat metabolism, our appetite, all the things that we have in relationship to calories is all caught up in inflammation as well. Actually, it, it shares the same pathways. Um, in, in adipo is a Latinese medicalese for fat and cytokines are things that cause inflammation. Now the major pathways that they link the two are called adipo cytokine pathways, places where fat and cytokines interact, get to do with things like tumor necrosis factor or leptin or uh, a lot of the anti-inflammatory things that are turned on and off. Again, the most important things about inflammation may not necessarily be what makes you inflamed, but rather why you're inflamed. As we get older, our cells are less waterlogged. We wound up with less water in our cells, which, and as the cells dehydrate, the messages inside of the cells slow down. And a chemical messenger that might have been triggered by a receptor on the surface of the cell in a, in a properly hydrated cell might get to the nucleus in two minutes, but in a dehydrated cell might take hours. So you can imagine if I passed you on the street and I said, hi, and two hours later, you said, hey, how you doing? <laughs> you know, it, would be, it wouldn't work because there's just no connection. Now, why, are cells, why do cells get dehydrated? Because as we get older, our cell membranes get very, very hard and condensed, and that doesn't allow fluids to pass effectively between one and the other. So we wind up with, uh, you know, it was explained to me by one of my teachers, that the cell membrane of a young person is like soft wax. The cell membrane of an elderly person is like hard wax. When it's been cooled, it gets very hard and brittle. Mm -hmm. So things you can do that regulate the health of your cells also regulate the level of inflammation. And one of the best ways to do that is right fats in your diet, things that help your cell membranes work effectively. You can There are supplements like choline and some of these other things that make your cell membranes kind of squishy. So looking at inflammation, number one is, is it seed or is it soil? You know, the soil is going to be the thing that makes a person prone to inflammation. The seed is going to be the thing that causes it. So it could be your lousy diet, but lots of people with lousy diets have less inflammation than people with pristine diets because the soil is so much more receptive. So go about trying to fix the soil, change elements of your diet, try to get to know yourself a little better, look for things that are going to have beneficial effects. One of the simplest ways blood type diets work is they give you a list of don'ts. And many of those foods that are don'ts contain proteins that interact with your immune system that rev up inflammation. So if you want to drop inflammation down, you just get the short list, the executive summary, and you don't eat those things. Right. And so if we avoid those things, does that help with things like weight loss and you know any type of anti-aging 
approaches that we can take. I mean, obviously we can't, we can't exactly, you know, reverse aging or pause it because we're all going to age and we are aging, but, you know, in terms of helping maintain that softness of the cells, the soft wax cells, is there anything that diet can do or lifestyle that, you know, can do to sort of help maintain that? And does that impact weight as well? Absolutely. And, 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 and there's other things too that have effects on inflammation. A lot of them we're understanding now have to do with, with genetics um, and specifically with how genes are turned on and off as a result of interactions with the environment, the wonderful world of epigenetics. We understand that genes, genes have little tags on them that allow the information to be read or not read. Mm-hmm. And these are called methyl groups. They're little molecules of carbon and hydrogen. And they sort of act like when you park in the wrong place in Manhattan and they put that boot on your car. Yes. You know? Well, yeah. it's, this kind of like puts a boot on the gene and says, you know, we're not reading you. Now, that's normally good because you want to have control of what genes are being expressed and what proteins are being made. The, the, the reality is that a lot of that is related to aging and related inflammation. A lot of inflammation is the result of epigenetic influences that are taking place at the genetic level that are the result of things that are pro-inflammatory. But we also know that one of the simplest ways you can actually control some of these things and have been certainly in recent literature has been shown to have a striking effect on longevity is just being positive and happy uh, and content uh, actually has been shown to influence the capacity of the system to more effectively silence the genes that need to be silenced and unlock the genes that need to be unlocked. These are, and, and you know, and, and one of the, one of the uh, authors qualified it as, as having rewarding experiences was how we call it to have experiences that re, that are rewarding you, not in a Pavlovian sense, you know, like to ring a bell, you know, a new car, a new yacht. It's, it's about having the reward that, makes you feel good about yourself, not necessarily feel good about what you own or what you do or what people think about you. It's about more about that notion that something in that experience made you a better you. And, and, and that growth then fuels that next interval and, that, and so on and so forth. So that's why you know a lot of times people age differently is that if you want to see a person who's aging poorly, they're typically dour, they're typically depressed, they're typically, you know, what do they say? You can't teach an old dog new tricks, you know, well, you know, they're not open to new ideas. And, and again, you know, what the most interesting thing was the rewarding experiences to me is about having vitamin E in my diet, which is expression. You know, you want to be able to express who you are and how you got that way. Uh, because, and I'm, this is the only metaphysical moment I will share with you. If we look at the universe as expanding since the Big Bang, right, it has to have some point where the knowledge uh, is, is growing as well. So the universe is always in search of new knowledge. So anytime you do anything that increases your level of expression, the universe kind of buys into it because it's looking to know more about itself and you've just helped it. Okay, so the reality is that if you're looking at what expression is, at least to me as as a physician, but also as a human being, it's really about trying to get to the root of the things that make my purpose here purposeful to me, my voyage purposeful to me. And I can tell you that you can watch a person age totally different. When you see a 60 year old who's got that type of a fulfilling life and really what it all boils down to is really a very simple thing. It's about not running away from being awkward your whole life. <laughs> okay. Well, and that, this is really when, when, you know, kids are okay being awkward because they're so used to, they're nothing but awkward. Right. You know, everything is new. Which no filter. That they're, yeah. They're, they're, they're doing everything for the first time. So they just are used to the fact that there's just a lot of the kids are natural bumblers. They're not, they're not bothered by that. But as we get older, we find ourselves less and less enticed by the idea of being awkward. Okay. And think about it. anytime you broaden anything, anytime you go into a place where you have never been before a place where you don't know what you think yet, you're going to be awkward. You're going to be in that awkward stage. So it really is about embracing that sense of, of being uncomfortable. That's how you grow. You grow at the edge of, of sort of uncomfortableness because you, 
know there's something in the past that's not good enough. And there's something that lies ahead of you that might be a little bit better. I always kind of tell myself that, you know, to, I, I have this mantra that I say in my head to, to sit with the discomfort because it's really easy when you're feeling discomfort to sort of run back to what's comfortable to you, what's going to give you that instant reward. And if you do sit with that discomfort and then you let it kind of move through you and you get to the other side of whatever it is, there usually is some big change in who you are. And I, and I like that, you know, approach to thinking about the aging process because it's something that isn't, doesn't have to be bought. You know, it's something that doesn't, you know, cost us anything. And of course there are barriers to that in terms of everybody's individual psyche and, you know, your makeup, but. And your, and your developmental history too. I and mean, your developmental history. A lot of people but, are wounded, at, you know, from an early age and, you know, it could take them their whole lives to just get the confidence to, 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 to be. I authentic. mean, I think it's a struggle for everybody, you know, and at every stage of life. And it's a constant reminder to, you know, I think having that authenticity and being really okay with being who you are is, is an empowering message. And it's something that, you know, when you, yes, we can do all these amazing diet. Yeah. I mean, you know, inflammation, eat more fish, you know? Okay. Let's move move on. Okay. Uh, You know, but the the reality is that, yeah, anybody can give you a short list of things that's going to probably not control the inflammation in your life, but nonetheless may, may, may make you think you're more in control of it than maybe you are, but that's okay. The bigger issue is is uh, how comfortable are you with the fact that there's so much in your life that's really not controllable, but you can you if if you if you if you really apply yourself and give yourself some time, you can dance with it. You know, you can you can go through the the the, the evolution of what that is as part of a, a, a partnership. You know, and I've seen you change as a result of what you've been dealing with physically uh, and much uh, evolutionarily much for the, much for the better, you know, and, you know, sometimes it's, it's, um, you know, life is not, my, my grandmother said, you know, the life is, uh, the, life is not fair. And there's no justice. She said, uh, and I thought to myself, wow, what a negative, like old person there. And, 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 and it turned out that she's really just getting me ready for what, life is on many times on many levels, which is that you shouldn't go looking for those things. But when you find them, the rare moments you find them, you should be much more appreciative of them because, you know, how many people nowadays go around expecting all of those things? They just, they just think that 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 comes with the owner's manual. Yeah. The reality is that you have to make a lot of your happiness. And like you said before, you coexist with uh, things that are not, they're not great, but you know, like the rabbi said, if not uh, now, when, and if not you, who? Um, and, and really, the reality is that it's kind of that basic notion that uh, you know, you're 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 a, a laboratory, uh, and uh, each person basically has to find a, a reliable way of getting to know more about themselves. You know, and to do something. I mean, you know, with their lives that actually feeds back and turns into something that promotes their own health. Yeah, I mean, we could have discussions about, you know, this or that drug, the surgery procedure, acupuncture, you know, adjustments or whatever. And they all have some play in things. But the big, the real resonant chord is about expression and it's about and rewarding experiences. And, you know, then life isn't measured in terms of minutes and hours. It's measured in terms of quality, which is, you know. I mean, like, I read something in Scientific American today that said, you know, there's no reason people can't live to be 150. I don't know if I want to be 150. I don't either. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, this. I. It's not. That's not really. I mean, I understand that there's just this whole longevity movement, but every time I bump into these people, they 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 don't have anything else on their mind except squeezing out a few extra years. And it's like, why don't you do something with with why don't you why don't you do something now? Be, other than worry about the future, you know. Yeah. You know, your your, your planet. Spend less of your now time thinking about the then time. You know, and you should be fine. Maybe you'll do something creative and helpful to the rest of us. But it seems to me it's like so much narcissism. It is. But but I also think we've we we have so much, you know, we just like are so busy in our lives and get so swept up. And I think that leads to depression and anxiety and all of these things instead. And I think there's a lot of fear of being present and being in the moment and stillness. And I think that leads back to what you're talking about in terms of really embracing what we have. And that's a way of finding, I mean, even though, you know, with 
with my surgeries, I got into a rhythm of saying, okay, yeah, I'm going to be not walking for five months, but I'm going to learn how to be a bean to bar chocolate maker. And if it wasn't for those moments, I'm serious, Dr. D, like if I didn't have those moments of pause, I would not be the person that I am. And people say to me, how are you not angry at this or that? And I'm like, no, I'm grateful for not, I'm not grateful for the pain and the surgery was terrible, but I am grateful for the formation and looking back and saying, okay, well, this led me somewhere good because, you know, I allowed it to. And there is, there's always that choice, you know? You know, depression is a really, is a really, it's, it's a real thing um, that is important to understand from a, maybe a chemical standpoint, but there's, there's societal adjustment type depression, which is different. And unfortunately, it gets medicated the same way as chemical depression. It's interesting because when you talk to a person who's chemically depressed, they go on an antidepressant and they come back and tell you that they feel normal for the first time in their lives. Yeah. So now I understand what normal is. Yeah. But probably about 80% of the people who are being medicated for depression really are just being turned into happier versions of themselves. Right. And, and ultimately, the problem with that is you're sort of just compressing the jack in the box a little further. Um, and ultimately, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of suffering in life. There's just no way about it. I mean, if you're not suffering now, you'll eventually be suffering at some point in your life. It yeah. might be at the very end, or it might be at the very beginning, or it might be in the middle. Or if you're unfortunate enough, it might be in the beginning, middle, and end. <laughs> Lucky you. Uh, yeah, but, right. but, but the reality is that, you know, there's life is like my grandmother said, there's no justice and it's kind of cool. But we, it, it, it doesn't mean we have to basically give in to that. It means we just have to, we just have to basically take up the challenge of what that means, which is greater self-awareness, greater self-sufficiency, you know, to be, and, and, and to have the capacity and the, the, the willingness to, uh, to be authentic, to, to be, like I said before, be a little uncomfortable and, and, uh, you know, try to do a good job of things, leave like the Indians say, you know, leave a nicer place than you found. And, you know, you'd be surprised how much inflammation is handled in methods like this. And here I am, you know, a physician who tells people with inflammation to do, but, you know, I, I would say that the most important thing is a good night's sleep, adequate hydration, reasonable exercise levels, good diet, careful diet, but not, you know, don't, don't, don't make, don't make a fetish out of these things that, you know, people go into these things. Once they start to make a fetish out of it, they have expectations and then they get disillusioned if their ridiculous expectations aren't met. Right. And it's like, well, you, you, you set yourself up for that, you know, yeah. just, just do it for that. Just do it for the hell of doing it. Well, there's such a huge psychological component. I said, to, I, I forget what the situation was, but I did say something to somebody recently, like, you know, you can, you can go do X, Y, Z for healing, but you also have to just believe it. You have to let it go. And you have to say, you know what, I'm going to heal. And mm -hmm. it sounds insane, but that is important. To give yourself credit. We, we, we possess the only piece of machinery in the universe that can fix itself. That's a pretty empowering thing to think. Yeah. How was the last time you saw a machine that you owned? Your, your air, your air, does your air fryer fix itself when it breaks? No. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I've kept you for a while now, but before we wrap up, I have kind of a funny question for you. But, and I just was thinking about this as we were chatting, but I have some, you know, I coach people now with, with, you know, wellness coaching and try to help them lose weight or, you know, just get healthier. And a lot of people will be like, you know, I eat a lot of sugar, like literally pour sugar on top of sugar. And I eat like croissants and I eat, you know, like crap. And I don't, you know, I'm in pain or I have this issue, but I don't really feel it yet, you know, and I don't really, you know, so when you when you have that extreme when you're when you're eating really poorly and not prioritizing healthy food at all fried food lots of sugar compared to eating a healthy diet can you just explain like in a very brief kind of easy way like as if you're talking to my niece my 4-year-old niece <laughs> the world is a cruel place the world is a cruel place and there's no justice <laughs> the, 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 the reality is that you know this is kind of a classic thing you have you know different people have different metabolisms and there's just some things that are just, you know, they're, they're counterfactual, you know, the person who, you know, every once in a while, they, they have good morning America. One of these morning shows, they have a 102 year old person 
you know, who smoked four packs of cigarettes her entire life. And, and, and again, you know, the reality is that this is what we're starting to understand. And I'm going to leave you with the, this kind of final thought. In medicine, it's very big right now to be what is called evidence-based. Okay. Everything's yep. evidence-based. Yep. Now, evidence-based means that some smart people took a look at something and concluded that the evidence was such that this is that. Okay. Evidence basis is Gaussian, which means that it's based upon probability and, and averages and things like that. And it's pretty good when we have to make broad decisions about something that we don't know much about in people that we know nothing about. So now, you, and here's a perfect example. I mean, has anybody ever seen a family with two and a half kids? Or, you know, like one of my teachers said, never cross a river where the average height is four feet. Because by definition, some part of that river is going to be eight feet high. That's the problem when you use Gaussian type categorization. Now, we live in a rapidly changing environment because we're evolving from evidence basis to big data. And big data is really where we get more precise, we get more personalized, and everything that we do is not specific to something we've seen over the course of some hom homogeneous type statistical thing. It's just specific to that one person. We have 700,000 gene markers and microbiome, and what we say may have no relevance to any other person we ever talk to in the rest of our lives, but it's specific to that person. So the interesting thing about big data is it throws the notion of evidence sort of into a cocked hat. As I read once, somebody said, and, and I, couldn't, I, couldn't, I couldn't put my hands around this, but they said, with big data, more data is better than better data. So more data is better than better data. In evidence basis, it's the quality of the data that drives the decision. But I'll give you an example of how true this is. If I said to you, listen, you have to go meet my friend at Grand, at Grand Central Station, what would you prefer to have? A low quality picture of the face or a high quality picture of the nose? A low quality picture of the face. Well, of course, because a low quality picture of you allows me to still see you. Right. A picture of your nose is not. No matter how quality. high quality it is, it doesn't right. give you enough information about it. Right, right, right. So when we look at what we're doing in precision medicine, we are generating huge amounts of data on people, not always great quality, but we just have to get in the room. If we just get close enough, we're actually making what one of my teachers said, he called a piecemeal approximation of reality. When I sit with you, I am approximating a piecemeal approximation of your reality based upon all this data. And that's how I zero in on what would be good for you which might be the worst possible advice to give to my next patient. Right. Ultimately, there might be something there that could be possibly no good, even harmful. Right. But in, and that's the, that's the future of things where you start to really get to the, you know, treat the person. Uh, and we'll, we, we're, we see that it's, it's like we, we have different approaches to the same disease. You might have this approach that works under these circumstances. Diseases might have different, you know, ways that a person arrives at that disease, even though it's got the same name. We got there through two different mechanisms to produce the same disease. So perhaps two different ways of dealing with it, or maybe more. Yeah, that's really, yeah, that's really interesting. And that a low, low that, quality picture of the face. You want yeah, a low quality picture of the face. But that, with all those specifications for Dr. Diadamo, what is wellness? How do you define what is wellness? I don't have a definition of wellness because I think that the word has, has, has gone on to have a life of its own. I, I like to think that wellness is just being in touch with your naive self, uh, the part of you that's impressionable and is able to make decisions that are not driven by marketing, not driven by propaganda, not driven by social media, not driven by authority figures. You're just going to make the right decisions for you. And there's a freedom there. So maybe wellness is, is freedom. And of course, you look at how freedoms are gradually being eroded, and you see that we are becoming unwell because we are less free. The world, the world should be a paradise. You know, I don't get it. You know, we managed to make this mess out of things. It would have been just as easy to make a paradise out of the place. It's true.
you know, so and a place where every well and wellness is where giving respect, getting respect. Wellness is respecting your body as well as giving respect to your body and someone else's body. So again, I don't know what it is. I'm sure people would say, well, you know, having a bowel movement every day would be like my design. Well, wellness, you know, <laughs> I don't know, you know, um, you know, or maybe twice a day. Uh, but you know, the reality is, it's it's all different for me. I, I've looked at a lot of human beings in the course of my career, and I can tell you that it's it's not so much the pursuit of health that matters. Health health aligns itself to to directionality. You know, when you have that notion of who you are, think about Edgar Allan Poe. Okay, guy's dying of tuberculosis. He's writing all these great books. All right, it was 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 that wellness? Well, maybe for him. Yeah. I mean, think of the creativity, the burst that was there, or all those Victorian lady writers who were always dying of stuff and writing novels and things. You know, and the end result is that, you know, and think of the people who don't, you know, find 10,000 reasons not to do something. That's not wellness, you know? So again, I look at it from maybe an existential standpoint, but I would say that, uh, you know, eat more fish. <laughs> More fish. I love that. Dr. Hey. D signing off, eat more fish. <laughs> well, how do, how do people find you and find your, all, you know, more of your wisdom and insight on social media, on, you know, your books? I mean, you have a thousand books. I'll, I'll link that. Thank you. I don't really, I pulled out of most of my social media stuff because I didn't like what it was doing to me. Yeah. Uh, and I do stay on Twitter occasionally. They can go to the website that I've built for all things blood type, which is my last name.com, the domo.com. You're, you're a feature on that. And, you know, I mean, I do see a small number of patients still by telemedicine. I'm going to be 65. So most of the time I spend now either under an old Volkswagen or writing software, uh, but I still see patients. And, uh, you know, again, yeah, no, it's well, mostly what I do is I just see the old timers, the ones that stuck with me. So I'll stick with them. So. Well, thank you, Dr. D. I really appreciate you coming on here. And I know your time is incredibly valuable. So I appreciate it very, very much. Thank you. It was my pleasure. It was just a delight to have this chit chat with you. Thanks so much, everybody. Looking forward to sharing my next guest, Frank Vogt, who is an amazing New York City acupuncturist. Please subscribe and add some comments. Thanks so much. Have a great day.